No credentials. Reviewing Rolling Stone 500. Greatest album. Welcome back, everyone, and thanks for joining us once again as we review another album off Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 Album List. Today we're reviewing It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back by Public Enemy. Too black. Too strong. Too black, too strong. Yo, Chuck, these honey dribbles are still front on us. So no we can do this, cause we always do this. <laughs> yeah, boy. You can imagine that two guys who grew up in rural southern Ontario know just about everything there is to know about vintage <laughs> hip-hop. Um, really, though, we, we needed a guest. We needed someone who might have a better sense, a better handle on this genre in particular. And um, I reached out to uh, a couple of people, including uh, Glenn Guyton, who is the executive director for Mennonite Church USA. And you might be thinking, that's kind of a strange place to go for classic hip-hop knowledge. But I know that Glenn is someone who is... uh, a music fan in general at the last right, right. Denom- at the last denominational gathering he actually sang a nirvana song on the stage in front of the delegates wow. and youth um, <laughs> and i know that he is appreciative of uh vintage hip-hop and and that genre as well and so um because Nirvana and uh, Public Enemy really go well together. That's right. <laughs> I mean, really, uh, that's really, I think, what it all boils down to, right? Uh, oh, so it'll be interesting uh, to take this ride together. Um, I am, uh, I've mentioned a couple of times that I'm a Mennonite minister and I'm ordained in Mennonite Church USA, which uh, Glenn is the executive director of. Uh, Glenn hails from uh, Texas currently, and so um, right. we've got some some different corners of North America covered here with Mike being up in Canada, myself in Pennsylvania, and Glenn being down further south in Texas. So um, we'll have fun tonight, I'm sure, and, uh, and hopefully Mike and I will learn a few things. Um, this album... Uh, before we get into too many details, this album came out when Mike and I were six years old. We were born in 1982. So, oh man, y'all uh, are making me feel old. <laughs> Sorry. We, oh my goodness. We need some wisdom just in that in that place and time too. What it was like uh, to be in the in the late 80s and not to be concerned about Sesame Street as your primary focus. So, um, well, this was this 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 came out this came out my. Uh, senior year of high school so this was out the summer after i graduated from high school oh awesome okay wow. that's probably yeah, yeah. 1988 oh yeah oh definitely <laughs> awesome well i'm excited to begin this conversation um each week on the sound logic podcast we tackle a different album from rolling stone's list of the top 500 albums uh it takes a little while here to number 48 before the genre of hip-hop uh, gets introduced to this That's list right. of the greatest albums of all time, and uh, I think we'll have some things to say on that as well as we go through uh, yeah. our information here yep. tonight as well. Why don't we start as we usually do with sort of preconceived notions? Um, you know, as six-year-olds, Mike, uh, we didn't have a whole lot <laughs> in our heads uh, when this album was coming out. Um, I think, like to be honest, most of my Public Enemy um, knowledge, and it's very minimal, comes from the flavor of love that uh classic MTV oh my MTV That's a shame. <laughs> um That's a shame. Uh, reality <laughs> show starring Flavor Flav searching for uh, his one true love and by that point in his career he's kind of become a caricature like you know just this kind yes. of like a little aloof guy who, who's sort of there for comedic entertainment and i think right you know being introduced in that phase is really a disservice to the legacy of this of this group in particular um, yeah. my, my other sort of pop culture reference point is, um, I was a fan of, uh, a sort of obscure sitcom in the nineties called news radio. And there's an episode of news radio where they discuss censorship in hip hop and Chuck D comes on mm. as himself okay. and, All right. and talks to one of the on-air personalities about, uh, about hip hop and, in sort of very frank conversation about, you know, he's writing about his life and experience. Um, 
Uh, and, and so, you know, those are two pretty poor starting points to begin a conversation like this. I don't know, Mike, if you have anything better, um, as far as sort of an entry point for public enemy or for both sort of starting from, from scratch here this evening. Yeah. My, my experience with, uh, really any hip hop is, is minimal. It's, you know, I listened to a little bit here and there growing up and, and I want everyone to understand, you know, I grew up in a in a rural area north of the city, so it wasn't the most the most popular music. But I've always tried to bend my ear to anything to me that sounds good, and that can come from anywhere. I don't I don't like to have that be biased. Of course, not far from us is the big city of Toronto, uh, which is very multicultural, and you'll get a little bit of everything. And my wife grew up in um, in a, a suburb. Of not suburb, but a, a part of Toronto, which is very diverse too. So she's familiar with, with lots of different types of music. Um, I will, but, I will say but Mike, one. But, but Mike, Mike, yeah. you, you have your name is like a rapper's name, Mike Jones, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, uh, <laughs> that's true. Um, I do not walk around with my phone number on my T-shirt, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> But that's true. I do. I do have uh, maybe not one of the more famous rappers in the last twenty years, but definitely uh, we. I, I think there's probably about five hundred celebrities that I share a name with. Uh, the good okay. news is that when people try and Google me, they can't find me. <laughs> okay, and it's even but, worse for your spouse, whose name is Nora Jones. Uh, well, yeah. Oh wow! So they're, they're a music yeah. power couple, really. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's it's really fun to make hotel reservations because people go yeah. people go Nora Jones, and we kind of try and play it up for a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah. I want to say that in about 1990, I did ask and received an MC Hammer cassette tape. Um, and oh, that's probably the. He touched it. <laughs> uh, and it was the the album was too legit to quit. Okay. Um, which I think came after "Can't Touch This," and I really, really liked that tape, and I had it for a long time. So um, that's probably the closest I got to old school <laughs> hip hop. Um, and I think uh, MC Hammer was really like he was probably the safest uh, for you know. A rural white, yeah. rural white guys to get close to was MC Hammer, right? That was like yeah, the yeah. safest. Plus, any of the, I mean, if we talk about Public Enemy, not only was uh, MC Hammer, for example, was very clean, and Public mm-hmm. Enemy, like this album, is is not clean in terms of lyrics. So my parents wouldn't would never have let me listen to that. Plus, politically everything in this album would have gone straight over my head at that time oh yeah and probably oh, yeah. would have probably would have for another decade and even now i'm i'm just not as familiar with all the i'm learning more and more and i and i want to learn more but just the climate in that time and even back to the civil rights move, movement in the 60s i'm still learning more and more about that so i'm having to listen I know we're kind of been, I'm jumping ahead but i'm trying i'm having to listen and also research like ah there's a lot of references here that I'm missing and I want to understand it better. So um, uh, I, I didn't know exactly what would happen when I pushed play. I, I kind of, you know, the beat, I knew what the beat would be like. I knew what some of the right. sounds would be like, uh, but I, but what I didn't know was the lyrics and that's what I'm having. That's the journey I'm on now is trying to just absorb and, and take in these lyrics. So that's me. I don't want to say too much more, um, but really yeah. Glenn, you know, we want to hear from you. And the, the question I like to ask when we have a guest on who's, fond of the album and has a history with this album do you remember when you first heard it or at least the time kind of and the hype about when it came out oh yeah but i just said man i was uh graduating high school <laughs> and so this came right when i was uh looking for my independence as a as a young young man right you know getting ready to go out into the world you know leaving your parents house and then uh you know you get thrust in the college environment yeah. Uh, you become very aware of who you are uh, as a young black man in America and then Public Enemy comes out. I mean, you only have to listen to the very beginning, like the intro of each each song, mm-hmm. you know, how they start off their their quotes from uh, historic, uh, you know, African-American leaders yeah. from the civil rights movement. There's, uh, uh, you know, quotes from uh, James Brown, uh, uh, one of the songs starts off uh you know too black too strong right uh and this is in the the late 80s you know getting ready to go into the early 90s yeah. and um 
Man, yeah. I mean, so yeah, I remember it very well because you know, just about the time where where I'm becoming aware of who I am, when I'm becoming aware of of politics and and becoming an adult, then Public Enemy drops this, and and hip hop is uh, at that time it's a social commentary about what's going on yeah. in the the inner city, you know. So rap is just really kind of coming mainstream. You're moving from some more to commercialized rap. Uh, well, the commercialized rap had become popular, but then this is where the expression becomes mainstream. Yes. Like the stories that were told in New York and all these other places now filtering down to people like me mm-hmm. in Houston, Texas. I'm curious, was there uh, uh, any kind of pressure from family or friends to like be, be embracing this music or was this dangerous music that you kind of had to be sneaky about consuming? Was it everywhere? Was it, um, you know, what, how, how did you engage it as a, as a high school student? Oh man, there's so much stuff going on though here at this time. Also, this is during the time of the birth of MTV. Yeah. Right. Mm. And so, so music has been transformed. Uh, so you, you know, the old uh, saying was, you know, uh, video killed the radio star. Mm-hmm. So you you have right. music switching from um, the classic R&B that I, you know, that w- was playing in the 70s. And so that, w- that was kind of what I was listening to. My brother is 10 years older than me. So I'm listening to the, the classic R&B beats, you know, the full bands, Commodores, uh, mm-hmm. Michael Jackson. Yep. And then you get public enemy in this new form of hip-hop where uh you know the beats are becoming more complex because they're sampling now they're sampling the r&b from the 70s right right yeah so so it it has this depth of like what your the old school music which you used to listen to but now it's these new beats they're remixed they're coming on the scene and then they're saying okay this is what it means to be black right uh it's actually talking about your identity in a way that you probably hadn't heard from before uh it's kind of in your face yeah. mm-hmm. and so is it controversial yeah it's controversial if you are uh thinking about corporate america you're thinking about white people what you see on the news the, what the what the media is talking about i mean the group called itself public enemy yeah <laughs> so <laughs> so you you think you yeah, i'm an 18 year old black kid oh, all right well this is what i want to listen to all right. <laughs> Right, I want to listen to this stuff that that's uh you know that people are freaking out about. So my parents, I think we're fine with it. My mother let me listen to probably too much stuff, but <laughs> um, but this is what my friends were buying. We would go, and you said tape earlier, but we would go and get the uh, the vinyl. Man, I was still nice. getting vinyl yes. at the time. Going to the record store, looking through it, looking at the cover, you know, thinking about this music. Oh man, this music is so powerful that. Somebody wants to keep me from hearing this, so I got to listen yeah, to this. Right. Yeah, huh. yeah. So I mean, then you, then you think about like uh, if you one of the the premiere songs on this is "Bring the Noise," I think, uh, and it starts off with that voice of uh, Chuck D. Mm-hmm. I mean, just a, such an iconic rap voice, like bass. Yeah, how low can you go, <laughs> Death Row? What a brother know? And then that just hits it, man. So you think about driving around in your car, yeah. you know, on single skip day playing this on the uh, on the radio in your in your, in your car, <laughs> uh, bumping this in the speakers. This is when you know the bigger the speaker, the better it was with the big boombox. Yeah. Oh, this was this was a revolution on the streets that you could just carry around with you. The big boombox with all your stickers and stuff playing this loud. Uh, yeah, it was a phenomenon when it came out. <laughs> Oh, I, I just I, I just love that image, you know, because that is is a part to me that's part of the music and the the culture at the time, like to be bigger, louder, um, you know, oh, in, yeah. in your face and you know, you wanted <laughs> I mean it depends on your individual personality, but you wanted everybody around you to hear what you were hearing. Exactly. Uh, and that's exactly you know, now nowadays we don't hear anybody's music. You can walk by a hundred yeah. people on the street, all listen to music, and we can't hear any of it. Now, there's a time and a place that that's maybe good, but back in the day, uh, <laughs> everybody, you know, well, yeah, yeah, that's right. It's just a different culture. I, I like that image. It's a cool, uh, cool vision in my mind. When you think about young young urban kids, you know, so what were we doing at the time? And we, you know, your friends, if uh, would have uh, you know, big twelve inch, fifteen inch 
speakers in a car playing this loudly. Right. And this is the same time then you have, you know, another group, NWA. So you you you're contrasting NWA uh with with their music and and their social commentary, which was much more violent, I guess I would say kind of revenge oriented with yeah. public yeah. enemy, which was more had a more depth of social consciousness mm-hmm. and you know quoted uh, significant figures. You had these two things going on at the same time, right? And, and I know maybe you Canadians don't know this, but you know, then it was the big East Coast West Coast r- rivalry. Yeah, you know who was going to dominate the the rap game at that time. Mm. Yep, I'm I'm a, I'm slightly familiar. I know there was I couldn't tell you necessarily who was on which side, um, but but I know yeah. there was a big <laughs> a big rivalry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to get into some of that a bit more as we get into the the cover image as well. I noticed that um, Chuck D's got a Raiders jacket on, and I know mm-hmm. that was that was a really big connecting point for NWA as well. Um, right, so making that black and silver kind of synonymous with uh, West Coast uh, hip hop culture at the time, and so it was kind of surprising to me to see it on Chuck D here, um, but. But yeah, we'll we'll get to that, I guess, a bit more here as we <laughs> okay. as we get down into the artwork and things like that. Um, any other thoughts, Glenn? Before um, Mike gives us a rundown of some of the album details as we as we get going here. No, let's get into it. I'm ready. Cool. Details. 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 Yeah, we'll do some quick details. I I want to keep talking about you know about the album and stuff, but I like to give a little background. So this album came out uh, as we talked in the summer, June twenty eighth, nineteen eighty eight. Glenn's graduating year. Um, <laughs> That's right. We often talk about who wrote it. I mean, all the guys, the different guys in different combinations were involved in almost every song. Um, the sampling was by Bomb Squad production team. Uh, Chuck D wrote the lyrics, and then. Um, Flavor Flav is uh, the hype man. It says hype yep. man vocals and surrealism. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say um, a word or two about that particular role, Glenn? I was fascinated by that characterization there. Um, I just assumed, I think, that the two of them were kind of the writers back and forth. But Flavor Flav really does have a much different role here in this music than Chuck D. Um it, was that a, a pretty yeah. standard practice at the time for uh, for groups like this to have kind of a hype man running the show, or or how did that go? Yeah, it was. It was. So, so you you had to think about. And, and I'm not a, by any means uh, uh, a historian, you know. So uh-huh. I'm just talking kind of from what I saw right growing up. Yeah, in it. yeah. Uh, and, and, and as a matter of fact, Netflix has this documentary on the history of hip hip hop, and oh, I was watching watch it that. one day. Yeah, I was watching it one day, and they were talking about this club where some of the southern southern rappers in Texas kind of started. I was like, "Oh, I used to go to that club." <laughs> <laughs> like, so my, my high school years are a documentary now. <laughs> um, but if you think about the the early origins of rap, you know, it was a master of ceremony. You had the DJ, which was the the disc jockey, and so DJs and MCs started off spinning records. Uh, hyping up the crowd they were added part of the party and so you would have your dj spinning the records and then you would have your mc hyping up people and so then you know you know it's probably not a straight line but you know they evolved because you had different types of rappers and you know people doing more lyrical poetry but those people evolved and so yeah the hype man was important part of it you know you rap you had someone ad living uh, adding to uh, boost the crowd up, you know, as you're doing your rap battles and things like that, you had your, you know, you had your boy in the back yeah. hyping you up, <laughs> getting the crowd stirred up. So I think, actually, I think, you know, Flavor Flav was really kind of unique. I think even at the time, yeah, you know, the role that he that that he played. I mean, and he eventually became this court jester kind of thing later on yeah but at the beginning it was just like yeah he was just this he just interjected things at the right time he was a mm-hmm. perfect complement to the seriousness the hardness of of chuck d and he just kind of like he kind of flavor flav kind of brought it all together it's kind of like the stuff you were thinking in your mind flavor flav would just throw out throw out 
Like the things that you wanted to say when Chuck D was rapping, the flavorful was right there. Guy, oh, yeah, 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 boy. Yeah. You know, and, you know, he would just add it, and it was just it was just perfect at the time. Yeah. Uh, and then then he tried to do some rap on his own. I thought it was a little little cheesy some of his raps, but I mean, yeah. it was, but it was fun. It was fun. It was yeah. Well, I think if we think about like the the experience of the black church, uh, the preacher will often have you know the the either the choir person or someone in the front pews who's like you know continuing to cheer them on right giving them amens or whatever like something that just keeps that fire going as you you need that yeah yeah you need that i I mean that's why you know when i go preach in some churches if i preach in the traditional you know uh african-american or some you know hispanic churches you know it's easy because i know people gonna help me I go to some um, more traditional white churches, Mennonite churches. Nobody says anything, so I said, "Well, yep. I got to, I got to fill in the whole time." But if somebody's, <laughs> like, somebody's encouraging you, you know, it just helps you keep that flow just keep going. going. Yeah, yeah. You know what it reminds me of, uh, Glenn? We had a, a really great conversation with a, a musician. His name is Joe Bowie, and okay. he uh, he joined us when we talked about James Brown's "Live at the Apollo," and. We mm-hmm. talked about the same thing, that there was a guy who came and introduced the show and that James Brown had people on stage with him building the suspense the whole time. There's other people. So yeah. we see that even back in the 60s, having a guy yeah. up there, you know, where they did the thing with, you know, with the with the cape. We put the cape around him and, and just all this oh, stuff yeah, yeah. to build the suspense and keep things going. That kind of reminds me of that tradition, too. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that, you you know, there were some other, I guess, side people. Uh, I think Professor Griff was in the group. Yeah. That's who I remember. Uh, and uh, you had, okay, of course, the DJ, Terminator X. Right. Uh, was yeah. the DJ. Yeah. But I think Professor Griff was the standout who I really remember. But then you had the the uh, the security of the first world. Uh, the guys that kind of stood behind them and just kind of, I wouldn't say they were dancers, but they were very reminiscent of the uh, security people that were in the Nation of Islam. Right. Uh, that was, it was really some real close connections between the Nation of Islam and kind of how they presented themselves and Public Enemy. And, and as a matter of fact, you know, there are several references to Farrakhan yep. in the lyrics to, to, the, to the songs. Night, again, we're jumping ahead, but Night of the Living Bassheads, that starts with a quote from... Um, uh, if I get this name right, Khalid, Khalid Muhammad uh, from a, oh, yep, from yep, a yep. rally, which is a pretty famous, um, I think, rally and speech as well. And that's another uh, Nation of Islam uh, minister there, yep. too. So, yeah, a, lo- a lot of connections there. Yep, yep. Yeah, t- uh, Terminator X, the DJ, Eric Vietnam Sadler, I think shows up. It might, might only be one one or two tracks. But I think the main guys, Chuck D, Flava Flav, Terminator X, and uh, mm-hmm. Professor Griff, I think those are the main guys on this album, anyways. Yeah, and that's who I would re- remember. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure Eric Sadler. I'm not sure what he uh, did over the time, and, and I'm sure that uh, he probably had some some credits other places. But again, I'm not necessarily a historian. I just liked the group when I was. Yeah, there. no, I, I I'm yeah. just kind of reading some notes here, but that's just a smaller part of it. Shock Lee, that's another one of the famous producers. I think I'm not sure what their uh, full role was in the group. They kind of, I mean, there's a sort of a legendary kind of stories, I guess, about the Bomb Squad and their capacity to like just draw from all kinds of different music in in the studio. And so, I think it was it was a whole bunch of people kind of um, layering and adding and just continuing to expand the sound of this album. So it gets performed by one set of people, but but a whole bunch of people went into the production and execution of the, how the music ends up sounding on the record. Yeah. And I mean, and then you think about at the time too, Def Jam was just a major force in the, in the, in the hip hop industry. Um, yeah. And Def Jam was with, in the, I don't you know if you're familiar with Run DMC, Reverend Run's brother, uh, Russell Simmons was kind of the, one of the, uh, the owner of the company, I guess CEO of the company that kind of really started Def Jam and had a lot of different entertainment uh, type things. Had even had a comedy uh, huh. 
show that he produced, uh, which was, I mean, it was really influential in black comedy. I mean, it's just amazing yeah, uh, what Russell yeah. Simmons did uh, as far as black entertainment, uh, that industry on a number of levels. And so, I mean, again, it was this was really a revolutionary time, you know, kind of people became aware of black nationalism. Uh, a lot of a lot of kids wore, you know, when you went out, you wore uh, African colors, uh, you wore uh, these medallions. We used to wear these these black leather medallions uh, with uh, Africa cut out with the colors on them, kind of. So you know, flavor flavor this wore this clock. But yeah, <laughs> people did actually wore like African Afrocentric jewelry. Yeah, uh, when we would go out, uh, those colors—the red, the black, the green—was yes. something that uh, we talked about. You know, me and my friends when we hung out. Uh, so there was a—it was a really an awareness. Uh, you know that hit me so you know it hit me at a time when i needed awareness right and mm-hmm. at the same time this music genre is is, is coming uh into full full force absolutely this album was very political at the time it, you know congress was all involved in in hip-hop like they, they, Ban- banned from lots of radio stations yeah and- well yeah they you know that's one of the challenges you know uh chuck d they in one of the lyrics they they challenge you know we'll see if black radio stations mm-hmm. will even play this uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I picked up on that. Yeah. And so the government, you know, uh, and uh, some of the tracks talk a, a little bit about the uh, copyright infringement because uh, this is, you know, sampling was big. One of the things they say about this album is, you know, could it be made today? And probably not because you couldn't afford the uh, number of samples that are part the of rights. Yeah. Huh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. So it charted number 42 in the US, number eight in the UK. And I was surprised at that number because i would have thought it would have been higher in the u.s but a lot of the uh, on at least two of the tracks the samples that are from live shows it, they reference that they're in london so oh, obviously yeah. they were already well known in the uk and in london and in that scene so that uh again not being an expert by any means that was kind of surprising to me they were already international at this point yeah um which is really cool they went gold in the uk uh, and we're nearing two times platinum in the U.S. Uh, platinum, Ben, is that a hundred thousand or is that a million? That's a million in this country. A hundred thousand in Canada, right? Yeah, they have some crazy numbers. Five hundred thousand copies in the first month, and we, we talked yeah. just briefly about like whether or not people would play them. Their own label wasn't all that active in promoting the album, and yet it still moves a half a million albums in the very first month without any significant promotional effort. So you've got this interesting dynamic where I guess because of capitalism, people have to start acknowledging them oh, and yeah. taking them seriously. Yeah, Ben, 500,000 copies in the first month. Um, and it's, and the note is without significant promotional efforts. So yeah. the, I think, you know, the people were just latching onto it. Well, yeah. that's what I was going to say. If you think about the early distribution of hip hop, it wasn't getting radio play and so all these artists actually had to sell a lot of their own uh materials you know out of the car trunk now you don't sell five hundred thousand out of the trunk of a car but right. if you are based in new york if you're based in la these major cities that's how you get known is by hustling your own uh records and then mm-hmm. The industry said, okay, well, we can't just let all these folks make money without us making money. So now we got to get out of <laughs> Right. I think, uh, especially since we've already tackled this album, the there's an interesting footnote here in their anticipation or their intent with making this record. They wanted to make the hip-hop equivalent to Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. We've already re- reviewed that album. It was number six on Rolling Stone's uh, Top 500 Albums. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think, I mean, something that I keep coming back to here and listening to this and, uh, and in listening to Marvin Gaye was that there's a prophetic nature here. They're not just, they're not just, um, going for shock value. They really do. Like, I, I think are really trying to be prophetically speaking to the culture and the context at the time. And I think they did a really great job. Um, I'm not sure that it feels exactly the same as what's going on. Um, but they both have this really strong depth of, of social commentary, uh, I think, especially for the African-American community, but, but for the rest of America to, to sort of sit up and take notice as well. I think it works in both of those kinds of ways as well. 
Oh, um, it's exactly what's going on now. That's the yeah. that's the amazing part of it. The same things that they were talking about are the same yeah. things that that people of color are fighting for, especially in the African American community, are fighting for now. We felt that way. We felt that way with what's going on too. Like that album's from early seventies. It's totally relevant and still could be, <laughs> you know, everything right. on it could still be said today. Uh, you know, it's sort of painful that so little has changed that all those messages can still be said exactly the same way today. And I think the same is true of this album. Yeah. Well, it, it talks about political power, which, you know, which some people are saying, you know, we, we we're back in the era where we are struggling with some of the same uh, racial tensions in politics yep. that we were struggling with in the seventies and the sixties. Uh, pr- police brutality is a constant theme uh, through, I think uh, black music, uh, you know, that crosses a number of, of genres. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, he does go back and talk about some of the people like Huey Newton, El- Huey Newton, uh, Eldridge Cleaver, uh, other uh, black leaders at the at the time saying, hey, you know, we have to fight. We have to listen to these people. Yeah. Uh, I would say Public Enemy was probably a little bit more Malcolm X than uh, Martin Luther King. But uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of what what they felt at the time. I think, well, what they felt, what we were feeling, I, I think, at the time and just yeah. a new awareness as we were just exiting. So you think about my age. So I'm 50, right? 1988, I'm 50. Martin Luther King died the year before I was born. And mm-hmm. so my generation, Gen X, would have just been coming right after a significant civil rights. Um, so it's right after significant civil rights legislation had been signed. And so the generation right before us would have faced segregation. I would have been one of the generations that had been forced integration hmm. and so that's hmm. where we were so now you're saying we eat we're equal we really need to be equal and this music is coming out at the same time when we're still trying to figure out what does that equality mean in school right what does it mean in government there were still a lot of the first blacks were still still happening and so this music was was talked about that political politically charged climate in this era of excess of the 80s and 90s and black people were just like, hey, we need our piece of the pie too. There's this piece here of, um, you know, I think we hear it again today of uh, people in power, you know, because of our white supremacy in this society who are saying like, who are saying to black people specifically, you've got all these rights now. Like, why are you complaining? You know, we've done all that work already, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and, and just not getting it. I think, I think that, uh, again, that, that's speaking to that with this point here. Um, uh, what, what about capitalism's role, Glenn? Like, um, how does that feel um, to the industry that it takes sort of uh, white people buying your music in order to be listened to? Like that, like that to me feels like almost a symptom of a racist society, right? <laughs> that, that it's not until money comes that we start to feel right. value. Well, you know, public enemy also talked a little bit about that. I think it was probably in um, some later work, uh, fight the power, uh, which is a nod against uh, back to, you know, those sixties and seventies, but it talks about Elvis and it talks about John Wayne. It talks about two iconic, uh, you know, white figures who in some sense took a lot of uh, things from the black community. Elvis was, you know, was just notoriously known and the music industry for taking black music, R&B, black rock and roll and making it white, you know, so and not giving the black artists any credit. And so that's, you know, Mm -hmm. eventually uh, rap became a, uh, a commodity, you know, a viable commodity and you know, uh, one of the dangers. This so this is the weird thing, right? It became a valuable commodity, so the music industry wanted to control it. But at the same time, it all up. Well, yeah, but at the same time, white suburban kids started listening to it. So what happened? Then we had to put warning labels on on music. At that point, they start. <laughs> uh, right. Two live two live crew had these landmark cases about freedom of speech because of. I mean, their music was vulgar. Uh, but other industries weren't regulated to the extent that the black uh, industry was a black industry was regulated. Mm-hmm. So 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 the whole music industry changed and labels like then you had to be 
a certain age, uh, Walmart started taking music out of stores. This was a little later on, but but Public yeah. Enemy kind of actually, yeah, well, they were prophetic in some of these things uh, about the censorship and things that would happen once this this music became mainstream. Yeah, but they still want to profit off of it, and so I actually think now, and it's some uh, some hip hop artists just recently said this. I can't remember who it is. Now you wonder why you had the demise of of lyrical poets like Public Enemy and the rise of what would some would say gangster rap uh, and yeah, this yeah. this mumble rap. Well, why? Because you don't. It's not. It's not a threat for a community to use stereotypical type imagery to talk about money, sex, and drugs. But a but a group like Public Enemy that said, "Hey, you need to, you need to listen to Farrakhan. Hey, you need to to learn what Malcolm X was saying. Hey, you need to to exercise your political power to vote." That that group is a threat, and we yeah. don't. That's and it's not going to make us as much money as someone talking about bling and you know pimps and all these mm-hmm. other things that do, that doesn't help a society advance. So this album was really deep, man. I mean, it was it was so <laughs> yeah. it was so much. Yeah. I mean, they talk about media, you know. So it's a, a track on here. She watched Channel Zero. Uh, yeah, just talks about the mindless, uh, mind numbing. Uh, you know, entertainment and uh, why you aren't getting better. And it talks about the, the drug situation. It talks about families uh, not taking care of the kids, but putting them fr- in front of the, the TV and it's draining their brain. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it, but po- uh, Public Enemy was very, oh man, they were very uh, prophetic of, of some of the ills that we're all facing, not just the black community, but 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 yeah. all of us are facing as, uh, as North Americans. I'm sure Canada, I'm sure y'all had the same issues in Canada. <laughs> Everything's fine up there. Yeah, well, there, there's, <laughs> <laughs> I I think everything. I mean, if we consider that America has ten times the population of Canada, I think the issues kind of develop in the same rate exponentially. So we have that issue, but it, maybe it's more concentrated in certain areas of the mm-hmm. U.S. But yeah. in our urban centers, yeah, we have a lot of the same issues. Yeah. Um, and I think things are just too and the same with the you know we get in terms of media we get a lot of our media is American media and has been for a long time in fact uh, one of our prime ministers in the 70s put in uh, laws that are still in place today that uh, it's called that we call it the CanCon rules that you have to play a certain amount of Canadian content on the radio and same with television mm-hmm. um, because so much of our media was was American Yep. And I think that there are, there were, the, obviously that political party were feeling that we were losing our identity as Canadians. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, anyway, well, I'm just, I've, I'm leading us into a different podcast here. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we, I think we did have a lot of the issues, but I think it was way more intense, mm-hmm. obviously, in so many of the parts. And I don't think we had the, I mean, we talked a little bit about east versus west in the hip-hop world yeah but also there's a gang there's a gang rivalry thing there too yeah uh and we don't have that up here in the same way right right we you might would, have some of the same members of some of the same factions from different parts of the world might you know exist in little communities in some of our cities and towns but not not the same way so we we get it and we hear about it and we understand it but it's and, you know, our borders are fairly open, so a lot of stuff goes up and down, but it's not quite the same. We we, we watch it from a distance. We see it happening, but it's kind of like, well, it's down there. Right. And you don't have, like, the the gun culture and some of the other things, too, that has driven hip-hop, hip-hop lyrics. Uh, Public Enemy mentions it a little bit. It, it kind of... I think it kind of... I don't know if you're going to say throws shade. You went throwing shade back in the 80s, but... Uh, it kind of dissed, that would be the 80s term, it kind of dissed uh, some of the gangster rap, the glorification of violence. Public Enemy actually really spoke against those things. There's a, crit- a music critic, uh, Stephen Thomas Erlewine, called Public Enemy the most influential and radical band of their time, which I think is, is pretty brilliant. Um, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013, and Public Enemy won a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 62nd Grammys uh, just recently here in 2020. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so it's uh, you know it's a band that continues, I think, to be elevated to this yeah. level 
that I think we're getting at here of, uh, you know, really a game changer in the genre yeah. and also uh, in, in society. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I like one of your notes, one of your notes here on your mix. Maybe I'm messing y'all up, but on the mixing, how does, how does, how does uh, it was mixed. So if you listen to it with the left and right channel and it, and it, it makes just so much sense. So if you're listening to it in a room with big uh, 12 inch woofers, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and, and you have your, your speakers spread out. But that's the other thing, like this album, how it was mixed and the complexity and how if you're driving in your car, you can feel a beat going from side to side. You talk about the yeah. hype man, you know, they're throwing lyrics from left to right on some some aspects of the track. It just adds yeah. to the overall musical experience. Well, it makes me wonder, too. I found this note that um, they started making the album at Chung King Studios in Manhattan, but the engineers there, they felt like were prejudiced against what they were trying to do. They, they didn't like hip hop or they were racially biased or something like that. And so they shifted to a different studio, Green Street Recording, um, where they felt more comfortable. I, I wonder if that allowed them to be a bit more experimental and to do some of these things like playing with uh, uh, left to right mix and things like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. There's this other really unique note because the cassette tape sort of was the predominant mm-hmm. uh, music uh, avenue at the time. They made sure that each side of the album was exactly 30 minutes long so that there was no dead space on the tape. So like as soon as you got to the end, it flipped over. You know, the yeah. tape would stop, and you'd flip over and get started right on the second side. That's a beautiful um, thing. Kids, kids don't, don't even realize that. that. Yeah, kids <laughs> they don't even realize that. Hey man, I used to listen to the eight track, so that's that's a whole other uh, thing to think about. When, like an eight track, trying to figure out w- when your song starts, so. where the song was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. There are five singles on this album. Uh, Rebel Without a Pause was mm-hmm. first released in July 1987 before the album uh, comes out. A year then, before. A year before, yeah. That's yeah. Then, different, uh, yeah. It, it is a little different. Um, Bring the Noise gets released noise. Uh, yeah. in 1988 <laughs> before the album comes out as well, but, but just a few months before. And then Don't Believe the Hype seems to coincide with the album's release in 1988. Night of the Living Bassheads gets released uh, after the album comes out in 1988 uh, in October, and then Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos gets released in 1989. So really prolific with uh, five singles on this album uh, mm-hmm. coming out. So you were talking about the singles and the release of the singles. Now, I don't know if this is actually the reason why, but then you have to understand, too, like this this uh, album has some really good videos, right, uh, yeah. with it. And so a lot of music, I think, at that time... I don't know what was driving what. I'm sure the music was driving the videos, but it, it had some really powerful videos that if you watch them, you're like, oh man, I, you know, it kind of got you hyped up. It either uh, accentuated some of the social commentary. So they had some really good videos that came out with Public Enemy, and you could kind of see what they were trying to do uh, in the music. And it just added to it uh, because it wasn't many hip hop videos. Uh, you know, it was really a, a real struggle to get hip hop on MTV, but eventually they, you know, they, they gave. MTV an hour, you know, uh, a, a yo MTV rap. So you had like one hour out of the whole 24 hours of the day to see <laughs> hip hop videos. So, so it was good. So, I mean, it really added wow. to this, this, this uh, music being uh, popular. One thing we like to do every, every week is take a look at the cover art. Um, I think especially when we're talking about vinyl, you know, it gets blown up to that much bigger size than, than a, a CD, a cassette, or, you know, now in MP3 land, you know, we almost never even yeah. really pay much attention to the cover art. Such a loss. But this is like, this is intense, right? Like the Chuck D and Flavor Flav are behind bars. Right. Um, the public enemy font includes the um, person standing in the gun crosshairs. Yep. Like really nailing it in that like, <laughs> you know, we are violently wanted for this kind of thing. The album title is in bright red, uh-huh. kind of crimson on the right-hand side. It takes a nation of millions to hold us back. Each word stacked on on top of each other. And um, the image that I found does, does have the parental advisory yep. um, it does. sticker on it. I know that that, that came out in some different ways yep. uh, until it was kind of standardized later on. But um, And there's, there's sort of differing kinds of information out there on whether or not uh, artists wanted it because they realized 
pretty soon after it had come on to the first few albums that kids would actually want the album with a parental advisory sticker on oh, it. Oh, man, I'm telling you, you that's know, true. Like, I'm telling you that's true. <laughs> if it didn't have that on it, you didn't want to buy it. Right, it was like, you know, it's like a new kids on the block or something. Yeah, it's yeah, too tame. Yeah, yeah. I don't want that. <laughs> or, no, this is the other thing, because this was during the time where you had, uh, you can buy like, you get like 100 albums for a penny. Yeah, they were kind of ripping off um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Columbia House. Yeah, Columbia yeah. House and all that stuff. And you know, you would get the Columbia House. It would have the clean version. Nobody wanted the clean version. Of course, now as a as a, <laughs> as a minister, I would want the clean version. But as a kid back in 1988, nobody wanted the clean version of the music. <laughs> no. Right. The radio right. edit. Yeah. <laughs> so this cover's intense, and I mentioned earlier um, about the Raiders gear. Uh, I guess I guess everyone was claiming. I mean, it looks pretty tough with the black and the silver. Um, <laughs> didn't matter who it was 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 uh, rocking the Raiders gear. I guess. Yeah. Do you have any insight into that, Glenn? Yeah, uh, I don't know why everybody was. I mean, they were the bad boys at the time, of course. The right. They were kind of the bad boys of the NFL. Everyone knew that they were known for being tough. Uh, so I think they were, they must have been in L.A. at the time. So I don't know why Chuck D was. Uh, was wearing it because it was kind of a you know you think I mean this was right when pump I mean um, NWA was kind of coming on the scene so maybe yeah, yeah. it wasn't so much distance so yeah I can't really tell you why that is um, <laughs> I mean it was definitely I think for me growing up in Texas was a coastal thing we probably wouldn't have worn that we weren't wearing like Raiders gear that I remember yeah. uh, like that now we would have been wearing uh, maybe some of the puffy jackets and you know the baseball mm-hmm. caps and things like that, but not particularly. I would say Raiders. The other thing that jumps out to me is that Chuck D's got a clock on as well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I found a note that said for the first few years of the, the group, he he wore one too. Right. Um, there's some kind of like funny origin story about they used to wear stopwatches, kind of like you know we we are. Um, we never stop kind of was the, the idea. And then someone was going around flavor flaves project house selling these cheap shower clocks. And someone was giving him a hard time about his stopwatch and was like, you know, we could see it a whole lot better if it was a wall size clock. So he bought a cheap clock and everyone was like, well, you got to wear it on stage next time. And he did. And he just never took it off. But <laughs> I guess it sort of became, it became sort of this iconic thing for the two of them in their early days. And at some point, Chuck D was like, all right, that's that's enough. I'm done. But uh, Flavor Flav kept going. And, I, you know, that's a memory sort of seared in my head, even from the, you know, early 2000s uh, right. reality show that I mentioned. He's still wearing the clock today, um, which is which is interesting. He's just never quit, I guess. Just around the clock. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's bad. <laughs> Glenn, if you could pick, I won't make you pick just one, but if you pick a few favorites or ones that you remember when it came out that you just could not stop listening to one or two tracks, uh, what would you pick for us? Oh, Bring the Noise definitely has to yeah. be the uh, the the top track on there. Um, and Rebel Without a Pause is like really different. I think, uh, you know, with that kind of the, the little whistle that goes throughout the yeah, uh, the whole song. Uh, yeah, um, I think those will be the top. Don't believe the hype. Of course, is a good one. On uh, Wikipedia, for instance, you can you can click through each track and see what uh, other music has been sampled. Mm-hmm. And I think Glenn, you mentioned earlier that it would be almost impossible to recreate this album today because there'd be so many, um, you know, sort of <laughs> copyright infringement violations. Uh, there are certain tracks that are just loaded, like, you know, dozens of things being sampled, but it's really fascinating to see sort of what they're borrowing on and how vast they're borrowing too. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, everything from like little radio, uh, kind of jingles to, to queen to sort of vintage, uh, R and B and, uh, you know, everything in between. It just seems like it doesn't really matter where they draw from as long as it's got, you know a little snippet of something that they really want to include what, what about you did you have kind of favorite selection here as you listen through it or something jumped out at you um i think that uh cold lampin with flavor kind of gives me this whole different perspective of him because i think if i'm if i've got my tracks right 
that's entirely him, right? Chuck D's not on that track. Um, yeah, yeah. That that one, and then um, is it Prophets of Rage or is it Party for Your Right to Fight, where they they both say the exact same thing throughout the entire track. Um, it's really fascinating to me that it's clear that he, he is a hype man, but he's got a significant amount of talent on top of that 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 allows him to be so much more um, at, at times when he's given that that space to do that. Yeah, part of for your right to fight is, uh, I think, kind of a throwback to the Beastie Boys. You yeah. got to fight for your right to party. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. I wanted to talk about fun, one of my favorite tracks and kind of lead into a little bit of something else, too. Um, one of my favorites was Night of the Living Bassheads. And that song is pretty, is pretty heavy uh, lyrically. Mm-hmm. And it starts with a bit of that speech, which I found, you know, it, it just made me contemplate and is very moving and very poignant with that uh, speech from, I hope I'm not mispronouncing this name, uh, Khalid Muhammad. And I researched that speech that he gave where he said, you know, they, they, they took our names. They took, they took our religion. Yeah. And we were robbed, um, robbed of our names, robbed of our, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Now I researched the rest of the speech is, is in fact, incredibly violent and he was uh, denounced by the Nation of Islam for that speech, and and they said, you know, this is not what we represent. But that very first part, which is not directly violent, uh, which is stating a fact, and I think is can be very unifying. Um, I think really sets the tone for that song. I, I think just kind of made me sit up in my seat and kind of pay attention. And that's me from like. Okay, let's just talk turkey here. I didn't I didn't live that life. I didn't grow up in this environment. Uh, it's something I never had to worry about. I can only imagine and Glenn you you talked about growing up and and trying to find out your identity as you're, you know, coming into adulthood. I can only imagine being having that speak directly to you. How powerful that could be. Can you comment on that at all? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Yeah. So that, that speech says, have you forgotten that we were once brought here? We were robbed of our names, robbed of our language. We lost our religion, our culture, our God. And many of us, by the way we act, have even lost our minds. And that's a yeah. really, really famous speech. And, uh, you, you know, it's, it's really the contrast of how uh, different people that were involved in the civil rights movement articulated what needs to happen. Right. Uh, it's the contrast of uh, Malcolm X versus Martin Luther King. Uh the uh, mm-hmm. Black Panther Party, you know, Black Nationalists, uh, and and so, you know, it, around this time, I'm, I think in uh, when I was in college, then I began to read like the autobiography of, of Martin Luther King and also the uh, autobiography of Malcolm X, and so you you begin to understand how these two figures played out uh, and how their lives played out in different ways, even though they were fighting for the same thing, and yeah. and you know, right. as, yeah. As challenging as, as it is, the message of Dr. King, and, and and I don't want to get into the whole thing. You know, people talk about redemptive violence and all this stuff. I can't get into that deep theological conversation here. But people wouldn't have accepted the message of, of Dr. King had if it had not been for uh, people like Malcolm X. You know, you know, there was this push pull, this yin yang, this you know, all these things that work together to eventually right. move us towards civil rights. And so this is just a nod to this. I mean, but you see the frustration if you look at the the, the lyrics of, of what's going on about, you know, justice and, and the, the drug. You know, this is when drugs were being uh, put into the neighborhoods. You know, there was a, a, a belief that the government was intentionally putting crack in neighborhoods and black neighborhoods and the destruction that was having. And so it was somewhat of a wake up call even to, yeah, the black people, hey, you need to stop this you need to stop selling drugs in our community you need to stop uh using drugs you know we all black we all need to get get to this place together i mean this and this album speaks to all of that that empowerment yeah it's very it's very it's very strong but i find it very even again kind of from the outside very empowering and very uh encouraging and unifying you you have a note here and and i i didn't research it i wanted to see what what you meant by this about uh, Napster nineteen ninety nine stealing beats, Glenn? Oh. What uh, what was that about? 
Yeah, well, one of the tracks on here talks about the the number of tracks and about. Um, I'm trying to think which which one of these uh, tracks on the album talks about the actual league. Oh, a track eight caught. Can I get a witness? Uh, you know, there were lawsuits going on at the time about the number of samples. You know, so we alluded to it earlier. Right. You couldn't do yes. this music now, but no. they were openly challenging the use and the right of the, the freedom to use other people's beats yeah. and to uh, to put them in our music and, and say because because they recreated it. it. They didn't just take your regular beat, but they they did something new uh, to it. And now we've become so restrictive because of money on this creativity. I think we've, we've actually kind of killed some aspects of the genre uh, that would, would made hip hop in this album so powerful. And then you go a few years down on the road so i i guess you know, 11 years later then you have napster which uh just really changed music because then people were trying to that really created this streaming so you move not so now you're moving away from these physical hard albums uh the vinyl you have this digital streaming and now artists instead of selling all these copies out of the back of their trunk you know now it's online for 99 cents it, it, and at that time napster was free right they napster was just Stealing music yeah. and putting it online, <laughs> mm-hmm. music sharing. <laughs> yeah, so it just changed the in, in, industry, uh, and you know you see Public Enemy really fighting for uh, the freedom to use beats. And then eleven years later, you just have someone just putting entire music libraries online. Yeah, well, and I think there's this piece about the like skill of sampling songs to create something new that's to me feels like a totally different kind of um, art than than simply ripping something off completely right um, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- there's this amazing video that you can go and find it's on YouTube it's done by Power 106 in Los Angeles uh, they've got a, a DJ kind of spinning um, it takes a nation mm-hmm. of millions and on the second turntable, he he just keeps pulling out record after record and pulling up sections of it that they sampled. And so he'll like fade from one yeah. to the other so that you can see what the original thing sounded like. And he'll slow it down to the pitch that they took. Um, oh, wow. And it's just like, I don't know, it's like it's genius that they were able to have that yeah. kind of vision and foresight. That feels very different to me than... Um, then you know like music theft as we think about it i mean it, it really is uh creating something new from something old um right but yeah i like that though that that sort of that it was so controversial and then napster comes along and you know the whole thing is yeah, kind of flipped just... upside down <laughs> yeah glenn one thing that we do and i think you already have given us your answer but we've created a spotify playlist for the sound logic podcast where every time we review an album we put a couple tracks from that album uh okay so if you could uh pick two tracks for us i think you've already said that you know your number one favorite is bring the noise yeah um, yeah yep. definitely would so that i think we can put that on uh what would be a second track if you had to pick another one to, to go on that playlist yeah, Rebel Without a Pause, just because it's okay. just such a, a different beat. Yeah, you got that kind of rock, that rock, uh, that, that rock whistle. I don't know what you want to call it. That yep. whine that goes through the whole song. Yeah. Yep. It almost reminds me of a siren cool. or something. I don't know. I don't know if that was yeah. the intent. Um, I know I'm going to sound super ignorant getting into this, but there's like a whole bunch of sort of uh, sound machines drum machines that end up being sort of iconic in the industry that were used sort of for the first time here uh, and I think yeah. a lot of the stuff here not just the sampling but, but comes from the the sort of the limitations of the technology at the time that end up creating this this sound on songs like Rebel Without a Pause cool well we, we've added both of yeah. those now and so they, they'll show up uh, for for people who want just a sampling of this album, um, our, our, our yeah. millions of fans who are out there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You, 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 hey, I add one thing. I think yeah. is just amazing about this album nowadays. As you think about the the current rappers, I mean, just just think how many words Chuck D said. Yeah, uh, like on oh, each geez. one of these tracks, like you know, now the rappers just say like two words and something. What I think is one song out there that just says like one word or something. I don't know. <laughs> Gucci, Gucci yeah. gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci. That's like a whole song <laughs> now. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, oh, and man. he doesn't he doesn't stick with hooks either. Like maybe 
maybe no, there is a hook no. song, but it's almost never him. It's it's like he's just blasting through with with all of it. Yeah, that, yeah. Huh. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but that's a great point. Oh yeah, yeah. These rappers could nowadays. I mean, yeah. I don't know. It's it's just <laughs> just different. It, it's yeah. different. I mean, some of it's good. You know. Have you guys seen the chart uh, that the guy did? That um, it's a visual graph, but it charts all the rappers in terms of how diverse their lyrics are. Oh yeah, yeah. I've seen that. That's a good chart. Yeah. Ben, have you seen that? I don't think I have. No. I'm just. I'll flip that link over to you. You can just look at it. I'm going to see if I can find uh, Chuck D on there. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sure he's pretty yeah, high. In, that's that's a kind of a side uh, a side comment, but it's just kind of a, it made me think of that when you talk about yeah, his lyrics are very diverse and deep, and uh, it's it's anything but you know simple or lazy. Yep. Right. Yep. As we get into conclusions, um, we ask first: Is the album still relevant today? This sounds like early hip hop, but as we've talked already tonight. Um, so many of the themes are culturally relevant in this moment and even the sound like there's an intensity to it that has aged extremely well like it doesn't it doesn't sound uh, particularly dated now maybe uh, those who are really good about hearing a specific kind of sound machine will be able to tell like oh mm -hmm. yeah we've moved well beyond the drum machine that's on this track or whatever but to me this still feels relevant and i can imagine something like this charting on the charts today if it came out right now um what do the two of you think about uh, its relevancy uh here 30 plus years later the genre is still huge today and you hear it across every other genre you hear it sampled and and there's collaborations in every genre from country to um to rock, to pop, it's it's everywhere. It's still very popular. So musically, it's still very popular. And given you know the current political climate and often racially charged political climate in the U.S., the power of these lyrics are still just as relevant as they were when it came out. So yeah, absolutely, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, yeah. And I will say the same. I think you know, as you think about the social commentary. Uh, in this album, I think some of the things that they spoke to are still relevant. So I would say the message of, of this uh, album is still very much relevant. I don't know if it would be as successful commercially, I just because uh, of some a number of forces in the the music industry that have changed. Uh, but I th I do think it would find a place. I mean, it would maybe be in like some of these spoken word type things. But it's so much creativity uh, in it, uh, just to the way it's mixed, uh, the sampling, the, the historic references is just so powerful. Yeah. We move from uh, relevancy to the question that was at the beginning of the creation of this podcast. Does Rolling Stones ranking at number 48, does that strike us as sound logic? Is this the 48th best album of all time? Does that feel too high, too low, just about right? Um, I don't know who wants to begin here now. Um, I got to see who's above them. I, <laughs> yeah, it's a little trickier when you don't know the when you're not familiar with the rest of the list. Uh, a quick summary is that there's a whole ton of Beatles, a decent amount of Dylan and the Stones. Um, the list really leans sort of 60s, 70s rock in general. Right. Um, but but they've got this album here at number 48. I I don't know. I guess I struggle a little bit because it's pretty clear that you know, Rolling Stone has this genre bias. And so for, mm -hmm. for a rock specific greatest albums of all time list. Yeah. I don't know. 48 probably is pretty impressive uh, for like yeah. all the albums that have ever been created. It feels like it might be a little uh, bit too far down the list at number 48, given its historical relevancy and impact. I, I think for an album that has been making a clear impact for over 30 years uh, and has affected, sorry, has influenced a whole genre and been at the beginning of a genre, I think it should be higher. If we take all these different types of albums at par, at least within their own genre, then it would be very, very high. But even outside of that, I think for the influence it's had uh, and for how good it is, uh, because it is good, I think that it 
could be a lot higher. I would see it, you know, higher than maybe even higher than 30. Yeah, I think uh, I mean, I can see why some of these albums are uh, a little higher. Um, I, I do think there is some definite bias in, in Rolling Stone magazine. One of the things I would say that if anything that would make me downgrade it a little bit is because it's uh, sampled. Right. You know, it's the sure. music is not ori- original. If it had more original music, I would say, yeah, maybe that's can justify it, uh, it moving up. But it does pull from some of these other uh, other albums. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad that it's at least broke the top top 50. Should it be higher? I think it because of uh, the pioneer status, probably it, it should be a little bit higher. We also like to look at whether or not this artist is anywhere else in Rolling Stone's top 500 album list um on the 2012 list they show up next at number 302 with their album fear of a black planet um and on the original 2003 list they also appeared at number 497 right near the end with yo bum rush the show um which i think is their debut album a couple of albums that hopefully we'll get to in the next several years <laughs> as we move yeah. through this project <laughs> um but but yeah they are they are still out there um glenn we've had some technical issues tonight but we've made it to the end wanted to say our deepest thanks for putting up with two guys who are fairly ignorant about this genre and this style of music you've you've really enhanced my appreciation of this album and and we really really value your voice not just in this episode today but but your example in the world as you move about it and thank you for being on the sound logic podcast all right thank you hey i had a great time call me back when you do purple rain (laughs) (laughs) boy it's not that far actually number 76 Really, and end of the end of the year or beginning of next year, uh, we'll definitely have you back. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. All right, sounds Hopefully, good. we can get our technology figured out in the meantime and <laughs> not have so many hiccups. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we hope you join us again, listeners. Thank you as well as we discuss album number forty-nine. It's called "At the Fillmore East," a live album by the Almond Brothers. Should be good. Talk to you then, Mike. Take care. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.